everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormor and Strike, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz, and today, Lindsay, Pools, and I will be continuing our reread of The Cuckoo's Calling, covering chapters 5 through 8 of Part 2. As always, please be aware that our discussion of Cuckoo's Calling will reference the ending of this book, as well as subsequent books in the series up to and including Troubled Blood. Before we get started, though, we have a few things we want to discuss. Yeah, first we have a little bit of possible book news. Someone in our Twitter chat shared with us a post by Editora Rocco, which are the Brazilian publishers for the Strike series. And they said that they've confirmed that the ink block card is 900 pages. It doesn't say this anywhere else. And some people are still pointing to the Amazon listing that still says 944 pages. So I don't know if this is just a general 900 or if we're going to get further confirmation on this soon, but we will post a link to this tweet and you can also check out their website if you want, which is rocco.com.br. I would be so excited if Ink Black Cart turned out to be 900 pages long. Like the only thing better than 900 pages is a thousand pages. Yeah. I will take literally all the pages if I, if I can kill a man with this book by sort of just (laughs) dropping it on his head. If it can be used as a weapon. weapon. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Murder book, murder weapon. It's It's appropriate. Layers upon layers. Yeah. Like right up there with Order of the Phoenix or something. Yeah. I don't want her because we know that Half-Blood Prince was shorter than Order of the Mm -hmm. Phoenix. So she went backwards. No, no, no. None of that here. I need them (laughs) to keep getting longer and longer please and thank you yeah i'm here for the long strike books but we'll keep an eye out for further confirmation and hopefully we'll get some soon but we also got some casting information we did which is always my favorite part of this process Mm -hmm. now who do we think each actor is going to play that hasn't been actually announced yet because we got a cast list but we don't have who's Mm -hmm. playing who we should probably say that we're recording this almost two weeks before the episode will actually come out so there's a chance that we'll get more information by then. So if that's the case, just please bear with us a little bit. We probably shouldn't go over everyone because that would be a whole episode in itself, right? But what are some that stand out to you, Kent? I know first off, Linda Bassett. Um, So I'm thinking that this is Pat and we'll include some links and stuff to the people, but I could definitely see her sitting behind the desk with like a vape pen in her mouth and just judging (laughs) the hell out of strike. Yeah. She does have quite a stern look about her, doesn't she? I can see her as Pat. Yeah. And then there's Anna Calder Marshall, who's actually Tom Burks's mom. And this seems to be a pretty common guess from what I've seen like around Facebook and whatnot, but I think that she's going to be playing Joan. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a great guess and a great choice. I mean, I think it could be potentially pretty powerful. So I think I'd like to see that. On to the next person, Fanula Flanagan. Um, my guess is that she is a present day Una, maybe. She looks like just very pleasant, but I don't know, could be misleading. I had the opposite thought because I immediately thought Janice for her. But I think that's because I remember her in another role where she was scary or something. Maybe it was the others. Was she a ghost in that? Nicole Kidman was the real ghost. The other ones were the humans. Wait, maybe the servants were ghosts. Yeah, I think they... Okay, I think the servants were... It was the ghosts that were humans and all the humans were the ghosts. I just remember her being scary in something. But, you know, I'm also a huge baby when it comes to scary movies, so... Oh, Oh, she was apparently in Columbo. Could that be it? Really? What episode? Uh, Murder, a self-portrait. I'll have to look that up after we're done recording and watch it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, there were some pictures of her that I saw that looks like Strike and Robin interview her outside of her character's house, is my guess. So 
I think that still leaves Una and Janice as good possibilities for her because they could easily just interview Una at her house, right? One thing I noticed was there's a cute little birdhouse outside the house. It makes me think of either a woman hiding behind a nice aesthetic or a genuine nice person. So those are my two guesses for her. Starting to lean towards Janice too, now that you've said it that way. I was like, ooh, that could be misleading. But next we have Philip Cornwell and my money is just betting on this guy being Creed because no offense to this guy, but he kind of looks like a serial killer in the picture that I saw. (laughs) Oh, he's probably lovely, but that was actually my thought too. I think he kind of fits what I was envisioning Creed as a little bit Mm -hmm. different, but he fit a lot of it for me. So yeah, that was my thought too. The last person I'm not really sure. So Jess Impiazzi, I think is how you pronounce that. My guess is maybe that she could be Margot because she looks pretty young. Yeah, she could be. She's not listed in the article with all the other names, but I noticed that not everyone was. So I, I don't think it's a complete list. Another person that's been confirmed is Samuel Oatley, which is George Laybourne. That's confirmed on his CV on his agent site, Independent Talent. And there's a couple of others that we do have confirmation on who they're playing, right? Mm-hmm, we sure do. So we have confirmation of a couple of the actors. We have confirmation of the person who's playing Robin's roommate, Max Priestwood. He's going to be played by Cyrus Lowe. And then Genevieve Holm Beeman will be playing Una Kennedy. And presumably, since this actress seems to be pretty young, we can assume that this is a younger version of Una. So that points, at least to me, to the story being told at least partially in flashbacks, which is something that mm-hmm. I'm really excited about. Yeah, me too. I had really hoped that we would get to see Margot kind of come to life. So I'm optimistic that this means that we will. Yeah, definitely. Something that I found interesting with the rumblings, with the beginnings of the strike news and whatnot, was that Natasha O'Keefe isn't returning as Charlotte, at least from what we've seen so far. Yeah, there's a couple things this could be. I mean, it could be that she's just not listed in the article like some of the others aren't, and we'll get more cast information later. Or, you know, we don't actually see Charlotte, so it's possible that they do this without seeing her. I don't know. In my opinion, I don't know if the suicide attempt would be as important in the show as it is the book. I could see them showing some texts or glossing over Charlotte, but I guess it depends on how important she'll be later on. I think there's a lot of possibilities there, so I'm not too concerned. But there's one other thing that I wanted to talk about before we get started. We got a great DM this morning. Do one of you guys want to read it? I can read it if you want. Yeah. This came from at seven Steve's so blue on Twitter, who said, Since you mentioned Robin's sapphire ring in the pilot light, could I point you to chapter 17 of The Christmas Pig? I honestly think this is J.K.R. telling us where that ring ended up. You'll have to read the entire book to fully understand the world-building elements of the universe of the lost and the loved, but it's a nice little Easter egg for the strike verse. Yes. So I love this. Lindsay, do you want to read the bit from the Christmas Pig? I do. And don't worry, this doesn't have any spoilers. It's just a really quick little line. It says... They joined a line behind a magnificent sapphire ring. Would you believe it? She was saying loudly to anybody who'd listen. She took me off to wash her hands and left me behind on the sink. I love that. I love it too. It doesn't fit perfectly with how Robin left her ring, Mm -hmm. but it's still really fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's a sapphire ring that is not cared for, that is not noticed. And I think you you mentioned something about uh, the ring ending up in the wastes of the <laughs> unlamented. That's what I like to imagine, yeah. Yeah, because Robin is not sorry that she's gotten rid of that ring. 
right? No. Let's pretend that's what happens to that ring. I'll pretend. So the the lost sapphire ring is such a cute little Easter egg. Yeah. Thank you great. for that. Seven Z's. That is a good spot. Yeah, we all really liked that. So I guess without further ado, let's get into this set of chapters. We start out with chapter five. And what happens in this chapter is we have Robin discovering who Strike's parents are. And then she and Strike also agree to continue to work together without temporary solutions. The chapter opens up by Strike telling Robin that he'll be late on her last morning. And it says that she had been very slightly hurt by his casual use of the word last. She's projecting a little bit here, right? Like she tends to do, assuming that he's counting down the days until she leaves. Yeah. I get the feeling that she almost wishes for something from him that says that he enjoyed their week together as much as she had. I think this is another one of those parts that kind of points to Robin being one of those words of affirmation kind of people, don't you think? Yeah. I will take any evidence that she's words of affirmation because I (laughs) firmly believe it. But yeah, she needs to hear that she's appreciated. She she reads a lot into the words that people say, especially strike and the words they don't say. But she she knows logically that he can't afford her and there's this line that says that she's not looking forward to going somewhere new with the activities that would mean less than nothing to her and I think this is a nice little callback to the opening chapter where she goes up early to show herself keen for a job that did not matter in the slightest hmm. we're seeing in just these handful of chapters that this is a job that means something to her and is important to her and it's another example of their similarity and their compatibility so early on it super is Even though most of the tasks, the actual tasks that she mentioned she's been doing this week, like secretarial stuff, trying to make appointments, organizing the office, it's probably really similar to the actual things she's doing in those other offices, right? But it's different here because of the ultimate purpose that these tasks serve. So for the past week, she's been doing all these sort of menial, kind of boring sometimes tasks in service of finding justice. And it's that end that gives the menial tasks meaning, whereas those same tasks in that busy office would mean nothing to her. Although at this point, she doesn't really believe that there's justice to be had, Mm. right? But it's the pursuit of justice, the need to know, the need to solve It's being Mm -hmm. a detective. Absolutely. Robin had found the whole week more exciting than she would ever have confessed to Matthew. Yeah, I know. It's like a Pavlovian reaction to me. I hear the word Matthew. I go like, it's just a like a a gag instinct that's been Mm -hmm. sort of that's fair into me. It's ridiculous that she would have to keep this for Matthew. But also we get a little bit more information about Robin's history at the end of this paragraph. Mm. She had been halfway through a psychology degree when an unforeseen incident had finished her university career. At this point, did either of you have any guesses about what this could mean? Or were you kind of like me and just didn't think too much about it at this point? I don't think I thought too much about it either. Joe does a really good job of downplaying it until we get to career of evil, doesn't she? She kind of talks around it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I've talked about this specific point before, but I love the way that Robin having been raped wasn't revealed until the third book of the series because so often like you see writers in the media and tv shows they use something like this a woman having been raped as like the central the defining character trait that woman was a rape victim it defines everything about her right it's the main drive of the narrative a woman is her trauma in these stories and they don't really go any deeper than that but with robin we get two and a half books where we get to learn who she is as a person we get to know her and we get to like her so that when her past is revealed it's not 
a defining trait. It's a piece in the puzzle that is Robin. It's something awful that happened to her. It had a major impact on her life, but it doesn't define her, which is, I think, exactly what she says in Career of Evil. Yeah, I agree. I think it's an important thing that she has done with that Mm -hmm. and just dealing with trauma in general. Mm -hmm. We hear about her struggles with mental health and her anxiety and her PTSD and that isn't normally looked at in these kinds of books. So Mm -hmm. I think it's important. And I like that she focuses on it instead of turning away. Yeah, me too. But next Mrs. Hook arrives (laughs) and her outfit is is something. (laughs) She's got an orange coat and a purple knitted beret. I wonder, it just makes me think that she's friends with Neville's grandma. It does sound like a big red handbag and a green hat with a vulture on top would be right up her alley, doesn't it? I mean, honestly, (laughs) Augusta Longbottom and her could trade fashion tips. Yeah, it's definitely a bold choice. And I personally, I'm the opposite of bold when it comes to clothes. I am so boring. But you know what? I heartily approve of boldness in other people. So rock on. Do you think that she crocheted her hat? I hope so. Because mm-hmm. yeah, if I crocheted a purple hat, I'd wear it with everything. I'd be so proud of it. Maybe she has a bunch of different colors. She seems like a crafty lady. Like she's doing pottery. So in this paragraph with Mrs. Hook, though, there's this almost throwaway line that the three of us have kind of been looking forward to talking about. So it says, Acting on Robin's awkward descriptions of the lascivious Mr. Crowdy downstairs, Strike had bought cheap cups and a box of their own tea bags. Strike is out there proving yet again what a good guy he is, doing the right things for the right reason. You know, this is something that stands out to me about his character. I think it kind of gets buried because I didn't notice it the first time I read it. If she had written this whole scene out where Robin tells him that Mr. Crowdy had been inappropriate and that he therefore makes a trip to the store and buys these things so that the woman who was only supposed to be there for a few more days didn't have to feel uncomfortable while working for him. Mm. I mean, that says a lot about him to me. It just makes me think of those people who say that he's not good enough for her, you know? Yeah. In my opinion, these kinds of things are signs that he's a good guy. Yeah. It's a green flag for sure. Mm. I'm just wondering how the hell he didn't already have tea bags and at least one mug. Like, isn't that basically considered essential office supplies in England? I don't know. I I kind of see this as a man-woman thing. Mm. It's not weird to me that he doesn't, but I also don't have the cultural context to know for sure. So maybe some of our UK listeners can let us know if that sounds right or if it is weird that he doesn't have these things. Yeah, I would like to hear back from that because he seems to like drinking tea when he's working in the office. Mm -hmm. So you'd think he'd have been making his own tea. I guess he was just living a joyless, tealess life before Robin walked in his door. Just makes me think about this tweet that Joe had responded to not too long ago that she said made her laugh because the person was saying that strikes not good enough for Robin. And she was saying, yeah, yeah, this made me laugh. And that's all I'm going to say about that. We'll include a link to it. (laughs) But yeah, I think that she knows too, that he's, he's a good guy. He's a good egg. Yeah, I very much disagree with that opinion. And against my better judgment, I did respond to that tweet. But well, hey, it was a solid point. Chapter 45 does, you know, kind of make that point. Because Joe said she wasn't going to say anything else. And I was like, well, chapter 45 says enough. So says it all. Joe's keeping quiet. Time for Lindsay to step in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is the Twitter. I will defend him with my life. Yes, you will. And he deserves it. So next we have Mrs. Hook and she accidentally reveals to Robin who Strike's father is and she 
can't believe it. And I can't say I blame her, to be honest. Yeah, this is the first time we ever hear Johnny Rokeby's name. And I like the way that he's introduced so that we don't know who he is, but we know it means something because of the dramatic relish that Mrs. Hook uses and that Robin immediately seems to recognize the name. I feel like this is the equivalent of someone like Mick Jagger or somebody who's like Mm -hmm. equally iconic and well-known for her to have that kind of reaction. Yeah, exactly. You definitely get that feeling even though we don't know anything about him yet. And then next, Robin offers to help Strike bring his boxes upstairs, but he immediately rejects her offers of help. Now, I'm partially inclined to think that this is him kind of starting to reestablish those boundaries, but I was curious what you guys thought. I think it's possible that he's trying to keep some of his dignity here by not making his personal situation obvious to Mrs. Hook. And I love that Robin is the one who starts this by going outside to warn him in the first place. And she already knows enough about him to know that he wouldn't want this displayed in front of someone else and that he needs to organize his office as she puts it. I think Robin's consideration for him here is the highlight of this part for me. And I find it really endearing. It's so endearing. And him making it easier for Robin to distract Mrs. Hook by giving her information is as well teamwork super is i read this as a sort of a practical division of labor can't leave mrs hook sitting alone in the office one because you know professionalism but two she definitely seems like the kind of person who's gonna come snoop into what you're doing like peek her head around the door so you know like you said ken's they're working as a team that's teamwork baby yeah maybe i agree whatever the reason they have excellent teamwork in this chapter Mm-hmm. And it makes the tension of this being her last day even stronger because we can see how well they work together and we don't want it to end just as much as they don't. Of course we know it's not gonna. I know, of course. <laughs> On a completely different note though, I'm wondering if there's a bit of very early foreshadowing when Strike tells her that Mrs. Hook thinks her husband is sleeping with his accountant. Mm-hmm. Is this an early sign that Robin's accountant fiance is unfaithful? I know it might be a reach, But there's also the fact that Gisa May unkindly refers to Bristow as an accountant. It just makes me wonder if these are little nods to Matthew's character or if J.K. Rowling just really doesn't like accountants. (laughs) I love the idea that Rowling was at some point burned by an accountant and now she's just eviscerating the entire profession in this book series for the whole world to read. I firmly believe that this is the case. I will hear no evidence to the contrary. As smart as this foreshadowing might be, no, she's been burned. Now she's taking her revenge. That's definitely a funny theory. I like it. But I like the idea that she's actually planting this idea in our head that Matthew can't be trusted. That accountants are sus. Sorry to any accountants. I'm not sorry, accountants. (laughs) You're sus. We know it. Here's another example of really great teamwork. When he opens his office door and Robin jumps up to take her cup so that Mrs. Hook is distracted and doesn't see into his office. Yeah, it's really good. Robin's looking out for him. After Robin finds out that Johnny Rokeby is Strike's father, she looks him up on Wikipedia, all sneaky-like, and we learn some of the basics about him. We learn that he's the lead singer of the Deadbeats, who are popular in the 70s and won numerous Grammys, and he's been married three times and has seven children totaled. Now, I find it interesting that only a few people here were important enough to warrant their own Wikipedia entries, and that's his second wife, Carla, both of his daughters with Carla, so that's Gabriella and Daniela, his current wife, Jenny Graham, Prudence Dunleavy, who we heard from in Troubled Blood, her actress mother, Lindsay Fanthrope, and then Leda. 
Now, my question is, could this have any significance as far as who we can expect to see in future books? I think it's more likely that we'll see some of his siblings and not necessarily Rokubi's exes. But Prudence is who I'm anticipating the most. I really like her. And I wonder, because in this article, it mentions under most of his children, it will note what they do for a living, but it's not noted what Prudence does. So I'm just curious. I don't Mm. know if it's relevant to the plot or not, but I do wonder what she does for a living. I'm very interested in her after reading Troubled Blood. Yeah, I am too. I'd really like to meet Prudence and I'd really like for Strike to meet her. Most of these people could probably be added to our list of people who are only mentioned once. So we've seen more from Al, from Prudence, and Rokeby himself, but everyone else, they're just kind of random names so far, including the guitarist David Carr. He almost stands out to me because he's the only non-family member mentioned by name. And he's mentioned in a little separate bit that's put in as she's scrolling, which stands out to me too. So why is that in there? And in that bit, um, it mentions the album hold it back which was also mentioned in troubled blood in that blind Mm -hmm. item so it's nice to know that rolling has a consistent discography (laughs) worked out for the deadbeats i found it kind of interesting that that album appears to have come out the year after corman was born and i'm wondering if lita inspired any of the songs on it oh yeah yeah i wonder if we'll ever get to hear a song on that album that gives us any insight oh that would be neat the clue was in the music that strike refused to listen to the whole time i've always kind of imagined that as a child he'd want to listen oh okay wow stab me in you know the heart with that a child who longs to know his father would want to kind of sneakily listen right oh my god going back to things that don't rip my heart out of my chest and stomp on it go ahead uh we get the proof here that rokeby is in fact a leo and that he might be the Leo in the next book with ah. all the lion symbolism. I was going to make a sarcastic joke about astrology, but that's actually a good point. Sometimes I am known to make them. Very rarely, but you know. <laughs> but then Robin's Googling is interrupted by Mrs. Hook screaming from the inner <laughs> office and having one of the most dramatic responses I think we've ever seen from a client. Maybe Tufty's wife is up there too, but. There was that one guy that was mentioned in Silkworm who had a heart attack. Although that's involuntary. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, that's pretty dramatic. So he's up there. It says she had thrown herself on Strike's chest and was punching it, all the while making a noise like a boiling kettle. On and on, the one note scream went until it seemed that she must draw breath or suffocate. Ooh. Such a good line. I just heard a boiling kettle in my head and I'm like, how does a human make that noise? I don't know if I'm supposed to be laughing at this part, but I do every <laughs> time. It just, the whole thing is ridiculous. The fact that she pauses to breathe, but continues to punch strike. So good. I mean, to be fair, it was her own sister who was sleeping with her husband, but still, at least she didn't start punching Robin. Oh, thank goodness. I'm kind of sus about this because is she overacting to get the chance to feel Strike's chest? That's what I was thinking. A little bit. I mean, not <laughs> that I'd blame her. She's relatable. All of a sudden, Mrs. Hook is making more sense. Yeah. <laughs> we get it, Mrs. Hook. We get it. This is the first example of the client thirsting after Strike. First of many. I wish there was some way we could see the scene where Mrs. Hook confronts her husband, though. Imagine that scene. Probably lots more punching and wailing, but at a more deserving target. 
Right. Good for her. As silly as this might be, I feel really bad for Mrs. Hook. Like not only your husband, but your own sister betraying you. Like, How do you even move forward from that? Is her sister going to start bringing Mr. Hook as her date to family Christmas when this all comes out? Yeah, of course. I feel bad for her too. It's just the reaction that's so unexpected and so over the top that makes the whole scene funny. This one line here I love so much. I'll get tea, whispered Robin, Mm -hmm. appalled. It's just so English of her. It's like (laughs) crisis response. Step one get tea. I just think it's very charming and adorable. It is charming. It's a good thing he got those tea bags, right? Oh, very lucky. Otherwise, how would they have handled this crisis? This next part is a little bit awkward. She was almost out the door with the kettle when she remembered that she had left Johnny Rokeby's life story up on the computer monitor. It would look too odd to dart back to switch it off in the middle of this crisis, so she hurried out of the room, hoping that Strike would be too busy with Mrs. Hook to notice. I think I remember being a little bit nervous about this at first. I was hoping that he wouldn't be angry. You know, what did you think? I I was a little bit anxious, as I recall, about how he might react. And, you know, since he's such a private guy, and I didn't want him to have a reason to, like, not like Robin, because they Mm -hmm. were getting on so well. Robin doesn't yet know how absolutely futile it is to hope that Strike doesn't notice something. Notices everything. It's literally his job. It says after Mrs. Hook leaves, Strike goes out and humming cheerfully to himself, buys sandwiches for himself and Robin. Why do you both think that he's so cheerful? Because he's had a pretty draining morning. Remember, he's coming back from clearing his things out from Charlotte's. And now he's just been beaten up, but he's cheerful. I'm thinking that it's because he's wrapped up another case, so he'll get paid soon. It's not exactly like a happy outcome for Mrs. Hook anyway, but I mean, he's getting paid for it. Yeah, I thought that he was cheerful, presumably, because he's wrapped up the case and is going to be getting paid. And we know that money's been a big worry. So I don't think he'd be phased by Mrs. Hook's reaction. Like he's seen it all at this point. And I have a feeling she wasn't exactly using bruising force in her (laughs) dramatic hitting. See, I was thinking a bit more of a cheesy answer here. And I was thinking that he really enjoyed his teamwork with Robin. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense that he's happy to have solved a case because we know he likes to have things solved and to have answers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Robin notices that this is the friendliest gesture that he's made all week. And she's sure it's because he'll soon be free of her. Part of it could be that kind of like with the dress, he's free to be extra friendly because he won't see her again. But we also get this next bit that lets us know that he's not entirely happy about it at all. The prospect of Robin's desk being empty next week was a gloomy one. He found her company pleasantly undemanding and her efficiency refreshing, but it would surely be pathetic, not to mention profligate, to pay for companionship as though he were some rich, sickly Victorian magnate. I think that Robin is... Once more wrong about why Strike's doing what he's doing, at least in part. You know, he's not happy to get rid of her. He's feeling celebratory about being done with Mrs. Hook. And he wants to enjoy Robin's company while he can because he knows it's her last day. Now, Strike is happy that Robin was kind enough not to pester him about his background and reveals that he uses other people's reactions to his parentage as a standard by which to judge whether he wants them around or not. And to me, this is a really interesting insight into um, Strike's feelings about his father that we get early on. And it totally makes sense. It's no wonder that he preferred the company of those who saw the real him, so both in the army and as a civilian, rather than those who just kind of saw him as a connection to Rokeby. I was just relieved that this is how he saw it. And he wasn't upset that she was Googling rugby and that he, it was actually the opposite, that he was impressed. Yeah. He doesn't mind her nosing around for info on the internet, just so long mm-hmm. as she doesn't try to 
talk to him about it or make <laughs> him talk about it right yeah. it's all good this is just a demonstration of her detective instincts and abilities and he respects that yeah and it's another way in which they're similar it's that desire to know but not to pry another one of the reasons that max likes robin too right because she doesn't mm-hmm. pry Mm-hmm. Next, I really like this bit. Strike compares wanting to keep Robin on to a time in his childhood when he tried to convince his Aunt Joan to let him keep a grass snake. Yeah. When, like now, he desperately wants to keep something, in this case, to keep Robin <laughs> on as a secretary, but it would be kind of silly to do so. Yeah, I've always really liked this too. I think comparing how he feels about Robin to that overwhelming desire a child has for wanting a pet is really good. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really nice way to convey the struggle and how much he wishes that she could stay. Yeah, I agree with you. It feels like this is a much stronger feeling than he expected to have about her or has revealed mm-hmm. having about her up to this point. Yeah, yeah, it does. I love the little glimpse of into what Corbin was like as a little boy too, like running yeah. around in the forest, catching snakes. I'm guessing though that he did not win that argument with Aunt Joan. <laughs> no, probably not. But you're right. It's one of the few happy memories we get as a child, right? So I yeah, like it too. That's refreshing. Yeah, I'm betting that Joan was thinking of the next time Leda would show up and take them away and then she would have to take care of a snake oh my god yes I I was just thinking she doesn't want a snake in her house I mean I like snakes but some people don't that's what Robin should get strike for his 40th birthday (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding oh so this next part I have some serious feelings about the moments where they move in unison towards each other kind of like their wedding hug So this part goes at the top of the stairs on the precise spot where he had both nearly killed and then saved her. He came to a halt. Instinct was clawing at him like an importuning dog. The glass door banged open behind him and he turned. Robin was pink in the face. So is it too soon for me to predict that their first kiss is going to be in unison too? I could definitely see it that way. I don't really see this similar to the hug and lethal white though. I think for me, this is like the inverse of the beginning of the book where Strike is chasing after Charlotte, but now it's Robin coming out that door and chasing after Strike. And instead of it ending in an awkward and uncomfortable meeting, they're both happy at the idea of another week together. To me, it's almost like a let's start over moment or getting a fresh start. I love the fresh start notion and your reading of how it echoes their first meeting is wonderful. I'm also interested in the multiple mentions of Strike's instincts here. Something much deeper and more essential than logic or finances is telling him that Robin is important, that he needs her. I think in other contexts in these books, when Strike's instincts are mentioned, it's usually referring to sniffing out weird murder stuff or to crime solving. I'm just really glad that Strike both has good instincts and listens to those instincts. Yeah, he's got a natural instinct for the truth. Mm -hmm. And right now, like you said, the truth is that Robin is important. It is. The bit where it says he both nearly killed and then saved her. That's kind of the whole job for her. The whole relationship with Strike has nearly killed her, quite literally. But it's torn down everything she thought she wanted. She's torn down so much stuff about her old life. She's lost, you know, a marriage. She's lost her free time. She's dealing with the idea that maybe she isn't going to have children after all. She's lost, but at the same time, she's been saved by this job and by Strike because it's who she really is. Robin being willing to risk the ire of temporary solutions to work for Strike is also kind of a grass snake moment for her, I think. What do you guys think? Yeah, and temporary solutions isn't the only ire she's risking here. I'm guessing that Matthew's not going to be happy and that she knows perfectly well that he's Mm -hmm. not going to be happy about this. This moment right here is where Robin first 
grabs the reins of her own life. The step mm-hmm. running out the door to make this offer to strike is her actually listening to her own instincts and her own desires and actually pursuing them maybe yeah. for the first time in a very long time. It's a really important moment for her. I love that. And I hadn't thought about what she probably had to deal with later when she told Matthew. Mm-hmm. So good for her. Good for her. So Strike agrees to keep her on for another week or two. And this always makes me really happy. He's starting to finally starting to feel optimistic about the future. <laughs> I love how it calls it a curious sense of renewed optimism as though he doesn't know why. And what a nice little parallel to Lethal White where he's filled with hope after feeling hopeless. Oh, I immediately thought of that accidental kiss moment too. Yeah, I'm so glad to know we're on the same page. Like quite literally, literally, yeah. <laughs> her brains are on the same page. The same page of, of Lethal White, yeah. Yeah. Let's go on to chapter six. So Strike interviews Derek Wilson, one of the security guards for Lula's building. And we start out this chapter with a good chunk of Strike backstory, which is personally one of my favorite things. So it tells us that Strike went to 17 schools, give or take a few. And it's like a school a year with maybe a handful of years where he might have switched to another school mid-semester. Talk about chaotic. Yeah. And this hits me differently after reading Troubled Blood, right? It's just, it feels more heartbreaking this time around. And I'm curious about this Shimba guy that Leda went out with, especially since when Ted found them, he busted through the door and threatened him with bloody nose. Yeah. Go Ted. Reading this bit in particular makes me so angry with Lita for exposing her kids to these kind of men. I'm sure that Shumba was nowhere near the worst, but this bit really gets me for some reason. Shumba felt that the school system reinforced patriarchal and materialistic values with which his common law stepchildren ought not to be tainted. That makes me shiver because it shows the absolute entitlement that this guy she's just dating feels for her children. Like they're his and he gets to make the decisions. It's, it's sinister, frankly, especially since I can't imagine this little long lived relationship. Right. So Mm -hmm. two months of complete educational neglect while she's busy smoking weed with her white Rastafarian boyfriend. Listen, I know that strike loves Lita and he acknowledges her failings and chooses to focus on the love but I just have to feel like something's coming up in the next books that that are going to shake this tendency of his or give him a new perspective on just how bad Lita was as a mother. Because this this is bad. Yeah, I, I feel very conflicted about this. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he doesn't have the perspective that she, at the very least, made terrible choices for her children. Mm-hmm. I don't want him to lose the focus on his mother's love for him. One, because she's gone. And two, knowing the emphasis that J.K. Rowling puts on a mother's love in her novels. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious how it's going to play out because of that. But I do think that it would help his relationship with Lucy to be more open with that mm-hmm. acknowledgement. Yeah. And as a reader, I want to know, you know, especially if it has something to do with her death. So yeah, I'm, I'm conflicted. I don't want it to shake his faith in her love for him, but I'd Mm -hmm. like to see him acknowledge the trauma that she left him and maybe be able to heal even further. Yeah. And what you say about acknowledging trauma, I'd like to, I'd like to see him acknowledge the unique trauma that that this would have on Lucy. Cause like a little girl in these situations, Mm -hmm. it's a unique trauma. And I just want him to understand that maybe they didn't share the same trauma, even though they had the same upbringing. I agree. But this version of Ted storming in and threatening this guy reminds me a lot of strike. Mm -hmm. It takes the example of man headline to a whole other level. 
and I, I like seeing their personalities kind of similar in this way. So we oh, don't yeah. see this version of Ted now. No, but yeah, this was very, I could absolutely see Strike doing this. We love mm-hmm. to see a good male role model, don't we? Yes, yes, we mm-hmm. do. So after this bit of backstory, Strike meets up with Wilson and the way that she describes Wilson's voice just reminds me of kind of how she described Kingsley Shacklebolt's voice in Harry Potter as being deep, calm, and measured. It just seems like the sort of voice you would instinctively trust. Yeah, I agree. I don't think I ever distrusted Wilson or suspected him. It might be because there's some similarities to Strike. Like they're both mm-hmm. big guys and they have military talk and they both like food. So I, I really liked him kind of immediately. Yeah, I liked him too. We find out that John paid Wilson 25 pounds to talk to Strike, which seems a little cheap, to be honest. Is that what a pony means? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Sure I didn't know that. Yeah, it does seem a little cheap, but it worked. So is this a clue that John Bristow is maybe not actually as rich as he's pretending to be? Mm-hmm. Or maybe. is he just a cheap rich asshole? Oh, maybe both. There's this tiny thing that might be silly to mention, but it's something that I noticed about Strike's character here. There's this little line that makes sure to say that he thanked the waitress when she brought him a mug of tea. And the reason it stands out to me is because later on, it points out that Tony Landry does not thank the waitress when she brings his food, which of course says to me that Tony Landry is a bit of a jerk, right? Mm -hmm. So I like seeing these things about Strike that reaffirm my belief in his good nature. I think working any customer service job, you kind of pick up on these things about people and can tell who the jerks are. Yeah, definitely. I know that when I worked in fast food and took orders a few years back, that's definitely the sort of thing you learn to pick up on. And it's typically like within the first 30 seconds of them talking, you can just tell when people think that you're beneath them pretty quickly. Yeah. I worked as a server for a while. And any guy who's rude to wait staff, which includes not saying thank you, is instant walk away, block, delete, we're done situation for me. It is an enormous red flag to not have common decency because as Ken said, it shows that he thinks they're beneath him. Didn't Dumbledore say something like pay attention to how a man treats his inferiors? Not that servers are actually inferior. It's just that there is a power balance in, in that transaction. Yeah, he does. It's funny. That's one line from Harry Potter. That's always stuck out to me when Mm -hmm. watching people's behavior and learning about someone's character it's a good thing to pay attention to, which mm-hmm. maybe is why I noticed it about strike. Yeah. Pay attention to how you, how someone treats a person who has less power than them. Yes. It's an insight into, into their character. Another interesting bit here about strikes decision to stay in the military and also to leave. And I'm wondering whether this is more of strike leaving before things get too stable goes he could have stayed they had been keen to keep him but the loss of his calf and foot had merely precipitated a decision he had felt stealing towards him in the past couple of years he knew that his personal tipping point was drawing nearer that moment by which unless he left he would find it too onerous to go to readjust to civilian life the army shaped you almost imperceptibly with the years wore you into a surface conformity that made it easier to be swept along by the tidal force of military life. Strike had never become entirely submerged and had chosen to go before that happened. I don't think this has anything to do with leaving something stable. I think this is him knowing when the time was right for him to leave. We all have faced these moments where we have to look at a job or a relationship and decide whether or not it's time to move on. 
And I think that's what he's doing here. I don't think it's running away from something, but choosing what's best for him. I think the military initially appealed to strike because of its lack of real stability. I mean, yeah, there's a steady job, but you're constantly moving around the world, working with different people in different areas and different contexts. It would be a familiar lifestyle to him after his childhood. And because it was familiar, it would feel comfortable and safe. But there's also a loss of freedom and independence that goes along with military life, I think. And when he could feel it coming down to either I leave now and build something of my own, or I end up spending the rest of my life as part of this giant machine that is the army without, without the agency to chart my own course. I think he knew that he had to make that choice, like you said, Linz, and that as much as he loved the SIB and loved his time there, it wasn't what he wanted his whole life to be. I was just going to say how glad I am that he made that choice to leave because then he wouldn't be where he is now. And then I had to remind myself that these are books. (laughs) Fictional character does what the other wants. Yeah. Mm. Sometimes I forget. Yeah. Now, like we were just talking about how people treat wait staff or Mm -hmm. people with a less power in, you know, your relationship. So we find out that Lula and Wilson were friendly. And personally, I find it really endearing that she took the time to be polite to him where others didn't. It's also really nice how she asked him about his nephew every time she saw him. It's funny because it seems like a direct contrast with how her family describes her as being selfish and entitled. It makes me wonder who Lula really was. Mm. I don't feel like we get to know Lula as much as we, for example, got to know Margot. I have a feeling that maybe the real Lula was either somewhere in between or just had different sides to her, you know? I do very much get the sense that the real Lula was complicated and flawed and wonderful at the same time. Like she's very, very human. And I think it's amazing that Joe is able to get that across from what little we learn about her. Although as an aside, I'd probably trust Wilson's judge of character over any of the Bristos. Yeah, that's fair. This next part cracks me up. Strikes Pie and Mash arrived, steaming hot. The two men accorded it a moment's respectful silence as they contemplated the heaped plate. Just the <laughs> phrase, a moment's respectful silence, <laughs> yeah. just it's yeah. cracking me up. I just love that Wilson is also participating in this because it's not his food, but he yeah. <laughs> he also does it. I feel like if the situation was different, that Shrek and Wilson could be friends. They just go around in different places eating food. They could have a food <laughs> blog or something. <laughs> Yes, I love it. Throw in Robin's brother, Stephen, and then you've got a real party. Oh, it sounds like a party I'd like to be invited to, please. And thank you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We haven't talked about Freddie Bastigui yet, have we? Mm -hmm. What do you guys think of him as a suspect? Because he is so unlikable. And there's this bit where Wilson said that Bastigui said something to Lula the day she died that upset her. He's definitely unlikable. I'm not sure that I ever really suspected him, but I did think that he was a bit of a shady asshole. It's fair. Yeah. Strike says at some point that he was the male in closest physical proximity to Lula when she died and is thus a very obvious suspect with means and opportunity, right? Which means that he's too obvious to actually be the killer. Yeah, too obvious. Although knowing what we know of him in the end, I don't know if I would put that kind of violence past him, though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. He's a pretty awful man. Now, reading through Wilson's testimony, it's really amazing how lucky Bristow got just at every point of this interaction, especially with the camera above the front door not recording. Like Freddie Spastigui's idea to not enable recording on that really helped cover Bristow for a while. 
Yeah, I'd be interested to know how it would have played out if the cameras were recording because Bristow would have been in disguise if he was caught on camera. But would Carver and Wardle have watched through the whole day and realized that he was the person who never left? I'm certain they would have. I mean, once they realized that someone was in the building, did push her, and then left, they would have gone over that footage with a fine-tooth comb to try and try and get a suspect to find the person who went in but didn't leave, right? Maybe you have more faith than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess I'm thinking this way because I can think of a couple of wrongful conviction cases where the detectives literally choose not to look at certain evidence mm. or test certain forensics because it will go against their theory. So I'm a little cynical, I guess, because mm-hmm. Carver seems the type. Oh, Carver totally seems the type to do that. So during this interview, Strike zeroes in on all of the opportunities when Wilson is away from his desk. So since there's no recordings of the security camera footage, catching somebody in the act is entirely dependent on someone being there to see it. And since yeah. Wilson didn't notice anything on the security camera while he was there, those bits where Wilson is not at his post are little pockets of opportunity that are created for the killer that let him get away with it initially. It's a way to keep the mystery alive to us, mm-hmm. right? So we can't know if someone came in because Wilson was gone and didn't see it. It keeps the mystery alive for a while. Mm-hmm. There's this point where Strike asks Wilson if he believes Tansy's story and his response was, oh, yeah. I think that Wilson is such a good witness. I like that he doesn't try to fill in the details of what he doesn't know concerning Tansy's statement. He just says what he knows to be true and his instinct to believe her is right. Yeah, he's a great witness. Reading his Mm -hmm. interview was so refreshing. Yeah. Petition for strike to hire Wilson as a new subcontractor (laughs) in the next book, anybody? Seems like his instincts and observational skills are kind of on point. Yeah, that would be great. Talk about bringing an old character back in an unexpected way. That would be cool. (laughs) Yeah. Next, Wilson explains how he went upstairs because he believed Duffield was up there. But he says the flat was empty. The lift was empty. The stairwell was empty. If he was there, where did he go? Hmm. It's really interesting to read this knowing the end because this moment is when Bristow makes his escape, right? He watched Wilson run up the stairs through the peephole, resets the alarm and took off running. And like you said before, Kent, he gets really lucky here because the Bastigui's flat is on the first floor. So the Bastigui's had to have gone upstairs right before Bristow ran down. If they would have stayed and watched the lift, like Wilson had said, they would have caught him leaving. I mean, the timing is impeccable. He's so lucky. Yeah, he super is. Next, we have a mention, and this is a pretty important clue about the policeman knocking over the roses. Mmm, a clue. Certainly highlighting those flowers. Mm-hmm. And could we call them checking the middle flat and it being empty some misdirection? Because we're led to believe that no one was in there, but it's just that no one was in there anymore. Yeah, that's a misdirection for sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we get an answer to one of our questions regarding how Strike acquired the notebooks. So he apparently grabbed them during one of his last visits to Aldershot, which is known as the home of the British Army. And I'll include a link here to the Strike Fans location link. Well, now I'm just wondering how many he took. (laughs) You know, like, are they still using them in Trouble Blood or have they had to find new notebooks that work? They must have had to find another source now. Because how many could have you possibly walked away with? Like stuffing <laughs> yeah, him down his pants, up his shirt. <laughs> Combined with the bit earlier about him feeling the decision to leave coming on before the explosion. 
I think he could have filched them before he lost his leg. Maybe he was already having, you know, the vague idea of setting up an agency and was preparing for it. I would really love to hear the story, though, of how he first had the idea for the agency. I'd love to know how he started thinking about it and kind of made plans, you know, and what he hoped for himself. Yeah, I would too. This next bit, God, just always makes me feel bad about my own work ethic and just <laughs> continually impresses me with his. So it goes, uh, nevertheless, Strike had an incurable habit of thoroughness. It could no more have occurred to him to skimp on the interview than to spend the day lying in his underpants on his camp bed smoking, both by inclination and by training, because he owed himself respect quite as much as the client. He proceeded with the meticulousness for which in the army he had been both feted and detested. Mm-hmm. So do the job and do it well. Yeah. I can't read this without feeling massively called out. Here's a little clue that I really like. Wilson is telling Strike about all the people who came in that morning, including John Bristow, the cleaning lady, the security guy, and everyone else working on DB's flat. But twice in this exchange, Strike asks about these people leaving. He specifically asks if Wilson is sure the security guy left. And then he asks again if, to the best of Wilson's knowledge, everyone who came in had left. Could this be telling us that one of these people didn't leave or hinting Mm, at it? Definitely. That's a great catch. I think that it's for sure hinting at it to pay attention to whoever came in and then didn't leave. It's definitely a major clue. And he specifically doesn't ask about whether Bristow left, because if he did, then the game would be up and the reader would know too early. Very clever. There's a little reference here that I didn't get until this reread. And it was regarding the 1966 door code from whenever Lula was alive and strikes. Mm -hmm. They think it's all over comment. So I did a little research into this and apparently Strike's comment is an allusion to a comment made by sports commentator Kenneth Wolstenholm during the 1966 FIFA World Cup where England beat West Germany 4-2 after extra time to win the World Cup. So it's definitely another one of those niche references that you probably would only get if you're from the UK. Okay, thank you so much for explaining this to me because Mm -hmm. I had no idea what the hell Strike was talking about. Yeah. The last thing Strike asks Wilson about is Evan Duffield. This is a good bit because it tells us a very unflattering story of Duffield where Mm -hmm. he's screaming outside her door and calling her names. Mm -hmm. It really does cast more suspicion onto him because he just seems like a terrible boyfriend and someone who could believably resort to violence. But also I just find it really satisfying how as soon as Wilson walks up, he kind of cowers away and runs away like a true little coward. Yep. I also love how disgusted Wilson clearly is by Duffield's whole thing. I just like to see that men judging other men for being shit because, you know, Mm -hmm. that's nice. I I feel like I trust Wilson. Yeah. I think we're all pretty team Wilson here, aren't we? Team Wilson. All right. So in chapter seven, Strike interviews Karen Calavis Jones and he has Derek Wilson in tow, which means this is going to be very amusing. Yeah. So Karen Calavis Jones shows up and tells Strike that he has information he wants to pass along that the police didn't care about. What were you guys' impressions of him? Because, you know, when we talked about the wealthy living in a different world, he seems to be kind of living between these worlds. So he's Mm. part of it, but he doesn't fully belong. He's got a bit of an ego, right? Um, Enjoying the fact that Strike thought it was possible that he and Lula were romantically linked and he clearly likes puffing himself up a lot. Mm -hmm. There's also just this part that really makes me laugh when he laughs that Strike doesn't know what the best hip hop club is. Like (laughs) what, what about Strike? 
gives the impression that he frequents hip hop clubs. Yeah, you know? honestly. So Kieran, he is so desperate to belong to this high status world that he doesn't quite belong in yet. He's good looking, but he's also clearly got a sort of pocket of insecurity about mm. stuff. Does this yeah. remind you of anyone? Mm. It's Matthew. I'm saying yeah. that he's a bit like Matthew, except he's a driver yeah. instead of the evilest profession, the accountant. <laughs> <laughs> so these two men, they might be different in like the type of successful famous they want to be. So Matthew yeah. wants the city life, the rich business suit dude. And Kieran wants to be the famous yeah. actor. But I feel like it's that same sort of combination of desire and insecurity that drives them. So I can see sort of echoes of Matthew and Kieran, which means that I hate him. Yeah, I was just going to say what you just said makes me dislike Kieran Clavis Jones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that he seems to think quite a bit of himself, though. I don't know. He seems to yeah. care about Lula kind of to some extent. Uh, I wonder if he did or if it was just that she was famous. Mm-hmm. So I kind of get the impression that he cares more now that she's gone. Yeah. Although I do need to give him credit because he he did seek strike out to tell him this bit of information. So we got to give him that. Yeah, that is something just to show that we're even more team Wilson on this podcast. (laughs) This bit just endears me to him so much by the merest flicker of his facial muscles. Wilson managed to convey what he thought of the suggestion that Calavis Jones was bodyguard material. (laughs) Yeah. This makes me love Wilson. Again, this is a little like strike, right? I Mm -hmm. can see him doing the same type of thing. I'm fairly certain there have been joint interviews where Robin has seen him do this exact thing. We get some other important bits of information in this chapter. We have bits about Lula visiting her mother the morning before her death, writing on the blue paper while she's on the way back from her mother's, going to Vashti and then leaving quickly thereafter. It's kind of amazing how much information is out there in the open in both this interview and the previous one. Mm -hmm. Now, the blue paper, hugely important, but was dismissed by the police as something like a shopping list. And to me, this sounds like something like an assumption that Carver would make. Okay. I just realized when they said, keep saying shopping list, I was picturing like bread, milk, eggs. I just realized that maybe Carver thought it was a shopping list because she was going to a boutique to shop and that maybe he thinks that women write out a list of things to buy when they go to high-end boutiques and I'm like this sounds like something that an absolutely clueless idiot who's either never met a real-life woman or has (laughs) never paid a single iota of attention to anything a real-life woman does would think about a woman so I want to ask Carver what kind of shopping list he thought she was writing I kind of always took this as that he doesn't want to look into anything that would contradict his theory Mm -hmm. but yeah a lot of this feels like it's not that important but along with the blue paper her quick trip to Vashti is also really important it's brushed off as Lula being a little self-centered that she got Rochelle to come all that way for nothing but it's actually key to the Mm -hmm. whole thing yeah and speaking of Rochelle she is brought up again but is still not named which really points I think to how important she is Mm-hmm. So here's a question. Did either of you suspect Kieran Kalavis Jones? Because I think there's actually a lot of evidence or red herrings against him. Hmm. So here's why. Him wanting people to know he's close to Lula is a bit fishy, but if we're just looking at means and opportunity, mm-hmm. Strike asks Kieran if he still has the control for the garage. And his response to being asked says, 
The flicker of animosity was undisguised now. So he has access to the building and it's implied that he's the one who called off the paparazzi. So you could argue that part of his plan was to not have witnesses. He also doesn't have a great alibi. So he kind of scoffs at strike for thinking he parked his car with the other drivers that night. And he says, you can't find parking together in London. But I think the point is to establish that he was alone for a few hours when it happened. That's why Strike was asking that question. So I think he's actually a better suspect than I really ever gave him credit for. You are wrinkling my brain right now. I never even thought, why is Strike asking these questions? I never understood it because he did not register as a suspect at all for me. But from a means and opportunity perspective, he is a decent suspect. And yeah, you're right. That's what those questions are establishing. And I am kicking myself for not realizing this earlier. And it's funny because, you know, he's, why is that important? He's like, oh, I'm just curious. Yeah. Completely plays it down. Yeah. And I don't know why I didn't think of him as a better suspect either, but it's it's all there. Yeah, it is. That's really interesting. Now, as far as overall summaries, I guess, of Kieran, (laughs) Wilson really hits the nail on the head with this one. So he says he's a bit of a star fucker, said Wilson (laughs) as the car pulled away. It was a kind of apology for the younger man. He loved driving her. He tries to drive all the famous ones. He's been hoping Bastique will cast him in something for two years. He was well pissed off he didn't get the part. Yeah, hit the nail on the head with that one. Yep. It's nice how Wilson has, like you said earlier, pulls the same kind of thing with Evan Duffield. He kind of sees through these, yeah. these guys, right? <laughs> He sees, you know. And the chapter ends with Strike asking if he can come look at the building sometime and Wilson agrees because as we've already said, Wilson is great. Yeah, he's very helpful. Okay, so chapter eight, Strike is unpacking some of his belongings from the boxes he brought up from Charlotte's and he speaks to Lucy. (laughs) The opening line of this chapter is highly relatable to me and going on my list of reasons why I think Strike is an introvert. It says, the knowledge that he would be sharing his office again on Monday added piquancy to Strike's weekend solitude, rendering it less irksome, more valuable. Yeah, I'm totally down with the idea of Strike as an introvert, mainly because I'm an introvert too. Right. Mm-hmm. Lines like this really do a great job of demonstrating just how much he values his time alone. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to have to see a human being in two days. <laughs> oh, I got to savor every minute yeah. of this before I'm thrust into hell. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of thing yeah I get your strike I feel yeah you. this next bit makes me really sad through all of these mundane acts he felt as though he was accompanied by the specter that had haunted him during his months at the hospital it lurked in the corners of his shabby office he could hear it whispering to him whenever his attention on the task in hand grew slack it urged him to consider how far he had fallen his age his puniary his shattered love life his homelessness 35, it whispered, and nothing to show for all your years of graft except a few cardboard boxes and a massive debt. So sounds a bit like depression to me. I also highlighted this passage because it really stands out to me. It feels like it's making his depression its own character, but also the judgment of other people kind of all wrapped up into one. And the way the specter is described almost reminds me of Dementors. So lurking Mm. in the corner, watching him, forcing him to think of the darkest versions of his reality. It's a really powerful and effective way of conveying his emotions. And I just think it's a brilliant bit of writing. Yeah, I completely agree. And I thought of the Dementors as well. You know, someone needs to get strike some chocolate. 
yeah. stat. That last line about having nothing to show, it echoes the line from when he was clearing out his stuff from Charlotte's flat about the four boxes of crap and a set of matchless memories. But now that the specters here, the sort of dementor, it's it's feeding on those memories, drowning them out. It's powerful. It's a really good passage. But what I love most about it is that he eventually defies it. Mm. It says, but he had a job, he kept reminding himself, a paid job, Arsenal beat Spurs, and Strike was cheered. He turned off the television and defying the specter, moved straight to his desk and resumed work. Oh, good for him. Yeah, he keeps on going, he keeps fighting, and it gives me all kinds of feelings when you think about this moment compared to the moment in Troubled Blood where he describes what he and Robin have built together as his pride, his vocation. To think of how far they've come and to know that the specter must be long gone is really wonderful to think about. And it's a great reminder, you know, to us that we'll get through hard times. Now they're the best agency in London. Yeah. Next up, we get our first descriptions of and first conversation with Lucy. So it describes Lucy as being weighed down young by a mortgage, a stolid husband, three children, and an onerous job. Lucy seemed to crave responsibility as though she could never have enough anchors. Do we know what Lucy's job is? Yeah, I don't think so. But I'm curious to know what it is, considering it's being described as onerous. Yeah, we definitely don't know. And I also am curious. We know that Greg is a quantity surveyor. But yeah, I want to know what Lucy's job is. Yeah, maybe we'll find out. And also what her last name is, for God's sake. Yeah, I know, right? (sighs) Lucy could not disguise the fact that her brother worried and disappointed her. In consequence, Strike was less inclined to be honest with her about his present situation than he would have been with many a friend. I'm really hoping that these two can get in a place where they can see eye to eye a little bit more. That way they can be more honest and open with each other. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I hope so too, but Lucy exhausts me. I like the line that says that he's fonder of her than almost anyone in his life, but I hope that she realizes that she's kind of creating what she fears here and pushing him away. Yeah, he says he's fonder, but we never really get to see that fondness, do we? I'd like to see some interactions where we do actually get to see Strike's fondness for her because so far we've only seen him being exasperated, annoyed, avoiding her. Like, where is the fondness that he says he has for her? I want to see it. Lucy asked Strike how the business is doing. And this man seriously (laughs) says to her, business has doubled. (laughs) It sounds great until you realize Mrs. Hook was his only other client. (laughs) Not that Lucy needs to know that, but. Uh, Yeah, that line actually made me laugh out loud. It's so funny because he's not lying. It has doubled. (laughs) Exactly. The truth is hilarious in the way he frames it excellent line i love when strike is kind of unintentionally funny like this yeah that's a contender for best line in the book for me their business is definitely doubled kind of going back to what you were talking about earlier Lindsay. just reading this conversation is just exhausting like the constant questions and the pestering from lucy like i can't blame him for not wanting to be honest when he's going to have his every single decision just picked apart by her and the worst part for me is that he's already feeling down and judged by the specter and in one phone call lucy manages to reaffirm every negative thing that he's already thinking about himself oh oof. yeah do you think that she'll calm down a little bit after trouble blood now that they're clearly very successful 
And also maybe when he and Robin eventually get together. It would be nice to see her calm down and kind of be willing to let Strike live his life in peace. I certainly hope that this is the case because going back, I want some fun moments. Listen, I know that not everyone's on board with this idea. Do you mean me? Yeah, I mean you. But Lucy having to go through a divorce because of Greg's cheating and struggling with everything she thought was solid, everything she thought would keep her safe, falling apart could be the thing that leads to a revelation that brings them closer and lets them have a more honest relationship or maybe she just you know realizes oh look my brother is really successful and happy and he did that without my help so maybe I can let him be a little bit and let him live his life I mean that's Mm -hmm. also reasonable yeah I guess but it would require you know self-reflection introspection maturity well sure sure so I like to make note of every time Rokeby and this money is mentioned because I think it's going to be important mm-hmm. so Lucy says look stick I just think it's outrageous that Rokeby's getting his lawyer to hassle you when he's never given you a penny in his life he ought to have made it a gift mm-hmm. so am I wrong in thinking that almost nothing in this statement is actually true Roke be getting his lawyer to hassle you. I know it's my theory that it isn't true, so I can't say for sure, but I currently believe that it's actually the other way around, right? Yeah. He's never given you a penny. That's not true. So Lucy clearly doesn't know about this money and he ought to have made it a gift. Didn't he try to? He did. And Strike insisted on making it a loan. So it seems like there's a lot that Lucy doesn't seem to know about the money. Yeah. She does not have an accurate understanding, but I guess that being younger than Strike is when they were kids, she might not have understood what was happening. And clearly he doesn't actually talk to her honestly about stuff like this. So she has these misconceptions and then she runs with them. But yeah, this sentence in which basically every word is false, it feels like something we're going to look back later on and be like, oh, yeah, exactly. You know, Gillespie's the killer or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Good catch there. There's this moment here that I just wanted to highlight just because of the picture that Joe paints here. It's just, to me, it just seems very like film noir. Evening shaded into night beyond the windows while Tom Waits growled and moaned from the portable CD player in the corner. Strike chased the shadow of Lula Landry across cyberspace, occasionally adding to the notes he had already taken while speaking to Bristow, Wilson, and Columbus Jones. It is. It's very film noir, isn't it? So yeah, like it says, he's looking more into Lula and we get a much darker story than Bristow gave that includes Mm -hmm. homelessness, attempted suicide, potential prostitution, and a mental health diagnosis. All very sad. And he gets some of this information from a fan site called Lula My Inspiration Forever with an A, (laughs) which really should have been the name of this podcast, right? Strike My Inspiration Forever. Oh my God. Listen, is it too late to change our name? Because I love it. Amazing. Yes. Maybe we can have that be the title of this episode. Strike my inspiration forever. <laughs> yes, please. Yes. 100%. Yeah. I mean, that's the title right there. Next, Strike begins to look into the two other key figures in the case. So he looks into Kieran Kalavis Jones. It's not a whole lot. It basically just corroborates Strike's interactions with both Wilson and Kieran. 
And then next he looks into Evan Duffield. Yeah, I don't know if much about Strike's research on Duffield really stands out to me. I guess you can argue that his blasé attitude towards death when he says it's nothing more than leaving a party could make him more suspicious that he maybe doesn't value life as much as others, but nothing else I really think is is that important in the end. Here we get some more from the fan site, Lula, My Inspiration Forever. They ask a bunch of questions about her death and list three questions and I thought we should go over and answer them because they're likely important. Hmm. So the first question is who called off the paps before she fell? I think it's safe to say that this was Kieran Clovis Jones, right? And this is a big question because the killer really benefited from this. So it's a fair question to ask. Yeah, it really is. And it does seem likely to me that it's Kieran. But I, I can't get my head around why he would tip off the paparazzi that a celebrity wouldn't be there. Like, would he get paid by them for that kind of non-tip? Why would he bother? Is he just really concerned about the paparazzi staying like nice and cozy warm? Well, he could have told them where DB really was going to be, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think he's just trying to suck up to them. I mean, um, he enjoys being photographed and being with celebrities. So I can see there being kind of a give and take there between him and the paparazzi. Yeah. Like, like looking out for each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. The next question is why did the men with the covered faces running away from her flat at 2 a.m. never come forward? Where are they and who are they? Hmm. So the answer is one was Jonah, her biological brother, and the other was the killer, John Bristow, her adopted brother. It's interesting to me that both of these men were her brothers, but one was coming to try and get to know her and the other was ending her life. Oh, man. That's some good symmetry. I love that. It is. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. And the last question that they ask is, why was Lula wearing a different outfit to the one she came home in when she fell off the balcony? I mean, this is just because she was about to meet Jonah for the first time. Mm -hmm. And it's a good question because it just doesn't make sense if she jumped. I know that suicide doesn't have to always make sense, but if I was the police, this would be something that really bothered me. Yeah, I would be trying to figure it out as well. But again, Carver, you know, a man who clearly is a huge misogynist. He's like, women change clothes every five minutes. It's what they do. Okay. But so this blog is kind of, you know, doing some good investigative inquiry here. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Are we adding them to the subcontractor list too? Only if they use the name Lula, my inspiration forever as their name. Like they're anonymous. They're the internet researcher who is only referred to as Lula, my inspiration forever. (laughs) He had not visited the army rumor service site since Charlotte had found him months previously browsing it on his computer and had reacted the way other women might had they found their partners viewing online porn. There had been a row generated by what she took to be a hankering for his old life and his dissatisfaction with the new. This really reminds me of how Matthew used to get so angry when Robin would work or how he checked her email. Yeah. And there's the parallel too, with how Strike's reaction to this was to stop visiting the websites and Robin's was to change her password rather than having to actually confront and deal with that invasion of privacy. So both capitulating, both beaten down by toxic abusive relationships. Yeah. I really enjoyed this part though, where he's browsing the site and finding some enjoyment from it. It says that he doesn't regret his time serving, but he had not been of these people even while among them. Mm. To me, this feels like he's finally where he's meant to be and that he enjoyed his time serving and was good at it, but it wasn't what was meant for him for the rest of his life. And he's now with his people. His people being Robin. Right. Yeah. 
His lobster. <laughs> that is a beautiful interpretation. I was so literal. I was just thinking he was talking about being military police. Like they're aside yeah. from the actual military and hated. No, I agree. I think that's absolutely implied and could just be it. But I was just yeah. seeing this maybe other potential meaning. I like it. It's lovely. And then we end on this bit, which is really cute. If ever the SIB talked to you, you should say, no comment. I want a lawyer. Alternatively, a simple thank you for noticing me will suffice. Hmm. It makes me happy that this chapter ends on a laugh that we get Mm -hmm. to see strike laugh after a really rough chapter. Just a little bit of light, even though there's been this darkness lurking nearby. Yeah. All right. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks for another episode, this time covering chapters nine through 11 of part two. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE files pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can always email us at scfilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of the Strike and Ellicott Files.